Well, now we have our second reading from Scripture, which comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, beginning with the 13th verse. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to him, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on all of us, that in these words to come we may hear your word. Amen. Well, it's always fun to run across passages like this in Scripture because it gives us the opportunity to talk about that fun subject of money. Money, like sex, is one of these things people don't like talking about in church. Maybe that and perhaps sin as well. The things that when you look in the bulletin and see the sermon title, you're like, "Eh, maybe I'll go elsewhere this morning. (laughs) But this is a subject that's important and one that's worthy of discussion because money and particularly its use uh, has moral moral implications. Some of those things are pretty easy and straightforward. And you can think about examples right at the top of your head, in terms of the evils of money, the evils of greed. Uh, I think about uh, my brother and sister-in-law when they were in New York City when my brother was at graduate school, and they had their apartment for the summer, their sublease. They got to the end of the sublease, and they went to their landlord to get their deposit back, and the landlord said, I'm not going to give it back to you. And my brother said, well, that's like against the law, and the landlord said, that's fine, just sue us. And, of course, my brother realized, did the calculations in his head, that it cost a lot more money to sue this landlord than to just walk away from the money. And so he was forced to just walk away from the money. Now, my brother actually is in a good situation because uh, they could afford to do that and not be too horribly ruined. However, there are uh, unscrupulous people, unscrupulous landlords around the country um, who are not quite so kind and prey upon those who don't have access to legal counsel if need be and don't know what to do. This happens all the time. Or you think about uh, uh, one of my personal favorites, the bail bond industry, which thankfully uh, is being revised uh, and fixed here in Harris County. But you have people who are, uh, you know, who get caught for various crimes, get put in jail, and sometimes these crimes are pretty minor crimes, but there's a, a, a bond set. And some of these families don't have money for the bond. And so if you go around any courthouse, what do you find? All these bail bond lending places where they will lend you money uh, to get your loved one out of jail at interest rates that can approach 500% uh, on an annualized basis. And this type of usury um, 
is unfortunately allowed. But again, there are things that are changing now so that the poorest of the poor in their most desperate circumstances aren't being preyed upon. Uh, another example, uh, this is a personal favorite of mine, um, dates back sometime now to the Asian financial crisis of 1997. I'm not sure if any of you remember that. Um, but the Asian financial crisis of 1997 focused on uh, the currency in Thailand known as the baht. The Thai currency at the time was pegged to the U.S. dollar. So as the U.S. dollar went up, the baht went up and vice versa. And there were a few factors in the mid-1990s that were putting pressure on the Thai baht. The first was that the U.S. economy was booming at the time and interest rates were rising, which led to an increase in the value of the dollar and therefore an increase in the value of the baht. For an economy like Thailand, which was based on an export economy, you don't want your currency to rise. So it was hurting exports and hurting the economy in Thailand. At the same time, because Thailand had been one of these Asian tigers, it had attracted large amounts of foreign direct investment, aka loans, to Thailand, which equaled something like 140% of their GDP. So they actually had large debt to service at the same time. And a third major factor was China was on the rise in the 1990s, uh, which was crowding out some of the goods that Thailand produced. Now, this didn't necessarily need to create a crisis were it not for um, a group of uh, very intelligent and, I would say, somewhat unscrupulous uh, American hedge funds who saw this crisis and had the resources and decided uh, to make a run on the bot. And so they started short-selling the bot uh, to the tune of billions of dollars. Uh, this then led the Thai government to panic and try and defend the bot, which, of course, only led to people smelling blood in the water and piling on. Uh, the Thai government was able to hold out for six months uh, trying to defend their currency until finally uh, the pressure became so great uh, that the currency collapsed and the Thai government was forced to devalue and depeg the bot from the U.S. dollar. Uh, in one year, the Thai economy contracted by 17%. Imagine if that happened in the United States. So as a result, uh, you had some American hedge fund uh, folks who walked away with billions of dollars and the average Thai person uh, had their economy ruined. Uh, it also was something that spread to other economies in Southeast Asia uh, and led to a larger financial crisis and untold suffering. Now, yes, there were fundamental issues that were there, but many economists have made the argument, were it not for the triggering actions uh, of these unscrupulous gentlemen, uh, that wouldn't have happened. And yes, they, they were all men who led these hedge funds. <laughs> or I think about uh, reading uh, a few years ago about Angola. Angola, that fairly large in terms of area country in Western Africa that's oil rich. Angola is a place where they have lots of money as a result of the oil wealth, but that money is concentrated in the hands of very few people, usually those people associated with the DeSantos family. And that money does not get uh, funneled to help those who are poor. In fact, there are certain examples of that being the opposite. I remember this, uh, again, this account, uh, some journalist, again, they don't allow many journalists in the country for good reason, but some journalists noting how uh, in the slums of Luanda, there's no plumbing, and so the people that live there uh, have to buy drinking water from trucks that come around selling drinking water. Uh, and again, the people who own these trucks and sell this drinking water are linked to the DeSantos family. So they have billions of dollars in which they could easily run plumbing to the poorest of the poor, but instead they decide to take advantage of them simply because they can some of the evils of greed uh, and misused wealth. I'm sure you can come up with many other examples in your own life. But at the same time, there are an equally, number, uh, an equally large number of examples, uh, perhaps even more so, of cases where money and wealth do really great things. 
Uh, they provide food in our families, food for our families, the ability to go on vacation and relax over the summer. Uh, work and wealth provide a sense of dignity and independence, uh, particularly as people get older. Uh, you, wealth uh, is able to funnel money into life-saving research, pay for hospital bills, um, pay for education and schooling. What can be more joyful if you are someone who's blessed with wealth to be able to help someone else in need when you can? If you've had the privilege of being in that circumstance, and it is a privilege, uh, it's, it is quite a joy to be able to do that. Wealth itself, money itself, is neutral, morally. It's always a question about what we do with it. Now, those examples, and others like them, are the easy ones. <laughs> the hard part comes when the rubber hits the road in our own lives. And this is where Jesus like, seems to just like, seems to, like stab me right in the heart every time when I'm reading through the Gospels. I'm like, ah, he didn't need to mention that. Here is Jesus. He's walking in the crowd, and someone yells out, Hey, Jesus, teacher, rabbi, uh, tell my brother to, defa- to divide the inheritance with me. Now, you read that through, and you're like, uh, Who here in this room has had any experience with disputes over inheritance? <laughs> I remember a year and a half ago, I went out to uh, western Kansas for the funeral of a good friend of mine's mother. And I got there, and of course, funerals are times when everyone gathers together and celebrates the life of someone who's deceased, but it's also often the times where people see a will or other sort of inheritance things for the first time. And when I got there, there was this epic fight that was brewing and boiling over, and the fight was over a tea set. Apparently, uh, this tea set, uh, this woman had, uh, in her will, given this tea set to one of her granddaughters but in person had promised it to someone else. (laughs) And so over this tea set, uh, the family was basically not speaking and yelling at each other over a tea set. Uh, There are other examples in my own family, for instance. Um, My grandmother uh, was not in communication with her first cousin. And the reason was because my grandmother's uncle... Um, had apparently been, for many years, taking the... Them, again, my, my, my grandmother grew up on a farm, a dairy farm. Uh, they were not wealthy people, but the one thing they had in terms of substance was uh, land, which had been sold off for the most part, but also antiques. And apparently my grandmother's uncle had been taking the best of the antiques and selling them. Um, and so when it came time to deal with the inheritance, my uh, grandmother felt that she had been cheated of her rightful inheritance and so stopped talking to her cousin. Um, I'm sure you might have some examples like that in your own family. Uh, closer to home in my family, my grandmother, and again, this makes sense, my grandmother, uh, as she was getting older, had as one of her real wishes, her important desires, to have her home that she'd lived in for 60 years pass on to uh, her one surviving son, my uncle. And so she arranged so that the, my aunt and uncle could have the house. But of course, uh, how that then worked out with inheritance stuff vis-a-vis my mother, became complicated. How do you value a house? And what happens with price fluctuations and improving the house and different things? And all of this was fairly opaque because it was in the will, which by her own wishes, she didn't want other people to see. So all of a sudden, my family, which was very tight-knit, found itself being divided apart over an issue of inheritance. Fortunately, that issue did work itself out. But I imagine you have examples in your own families or in families that you know where uh, those issues have been tricky. And they're tricky for good reasons. You've got, 
you know, what is fair and equal? Let's say you have children, but some have greater needs financially than others. Should those children get more than others? Or should everything be divided equally? Let's say, let's say someone has their own money and they want to divide it differently and they want to divide it unequally. Isn't that that person's right? Or is that unjust? It's pretty easy to see why when this uh, brother was going to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, make a decision on this. And as a rabbi, rabbis would make decisions on these things. Hey, rabbi, make a decision on this. What does Jesus say? I do I want nothing to do with that. That is not my, not my thing. But instead... He steps back and in classic Jesus fashion says, maybe there's some principles that can guide us beyond the weeds and details of your particular family. Guide us in issues that go beyond simply issues of inheritance. So we come to this parable. And this is one of these parables. It's usually called the parable of the rich fool, which I think is not very kind or, or, uh, or generous to the poor person uh, who's described in the parable. Here's this, here's this guy who uh, works hard, farmer. Farming work is not easy, of course, particularly back in the ancient world. Uh, he's a farmer who's wealthy, and he has a bumper crop. Life is good. And so what does he do? He wants to set up a new savings account, maybe open an account with a new money manager uh, in order to sort of manage this money so that potentially he can retire early. And I read this through. I'm like, yes, this makes total sense. I totally get this. Like, I, that, I, I would love to be in that position. I mean, we, uh, I mean when it, we, we live in a society uh, where people graduate from schools, especially if you have the privilege of going to a really great school, and there is this intense pressure to work your tail off. I mean, my classmates out of college were all working 90 hours a week or more for at least the first 10 years out of school. That was just, that's just like the average. That's the baseline uh, for people. So people are working their tails off in order to earn as much money as they can so they can retire early. This, like, literally, this story is mirrored in dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people I know. What's the goal? Retire at 40. Retire at 45. Retire at 55. Retire at some time before 65, 70. Put away enough money. After all, you don't know what's going to happen. What are the chances that I'm actually going to benefit from Social Security and Medicare? Yeah. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not very high. <laughs> It's just the reality of the situation. So yeah, you see, this, what's, what are the instincts? Let's put money away. Let's save it. I mean, this is like, I read through this story. I'm like, this makes so much sense. He's putting up new barns. And then after he gets a chance to get enough in his barn, he's going to retire and he's going to enjoy himself. I mean, I think of how many people hold on to those dreams and do that. This is so common. He doesn't seem like a fool. And this is where there's that challenge of thinking about these things a bit more deeply. When I graduated from college, um, I was fortunate of the summer off before I went to go teach high school for a year in England. And at that time, uh, I went with some friends down to Martha's Vineyard, that island off of Massachusetts. And while I was there, one of my friends, uh, his family went there to vacation. We, we, we dropped by, and we were all sitting around in the evening. And I had the chance to meet my friend's father, first time I had met him, this one particular friend's father. And this guy had been very successful in his career. He retired as the COO of a major Fortune 500 company. Uh, but he was still working in his late 60s at the time. And I remember we were chatting, we were talking about careers. And he said, he said, you know, John, he said, we live in Greenwich, Connecticut. It's a nice suburb outside New York City. He's like, we live in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he said, I can go down the street in Greenwich and point out to you a dozen different people who are former, former managing directors at different investment banks who are all divorced, 
all miserable, their kids don't talk to them, but they've got all the money in the world. And he said, I chose a different path. I chose a path uh, working for this great corporation. I was really lucky. He said, I never worked, I, I never overworked. I was in different countries. I enjoyed every bit of what I was doing in my career, and I was lucky enough that things worked out really well for me. But he's like, I was never, he's like, I was fortunate. He's like, I was never super obsessed with uh, the kind of accumulation that some of his neighbors in Greenwich were. And he ended up being, again, he ended up being super fortunate. Don't get me wrong. But as he said, I worked another 20 plus years beyond what most of these people worked. I mean, it seems like Jesus is pushing us to consider what are the consequences of this. And who of us haven't been in this situation? You, uh, the situation doesn't have to be an investment banker. You could take on a second job because you want to do something. You push yourself to try and pick up other things on the side because you want to get more money. This all makes sense. Jesus just pushes us to try and think about whether or not there are consequences to that and how severe those consequences might be in our lives. You, uh, are you pushing yourself to a degree where you're getting stressed out and that actually has impact on yourself and those around you? I can certainly be guilty of this. Um, or one of the things is when you start getting in these situations where you're pushing yourself so hard and being so obsessed with getting, getting ahead, so obsessed with saving that money, so obsessed with trying to have security that it begins to change who you are. It changes your priorities. As you collect more and more things, all of a sudden the goalpost starts moving. Things that you didn't think were necessary before all of a sudden become necessary. So the goalpost keeps getting farther and farther and farther out. You need the nicer house. You get used to the nice clothes. You get used to the country club memberships. You get used to whatever it is is the the case in your life. And next thing you know, it's like, well, maybe I can't retire then. I've got to retire further and further out. And it just becomes a self-feeding beast, at least it can be. I think this is the kind of stuff that Jesus is pushing us to think about here. It's not that this guy is a fool. He's doing something totally normal, especially in our society. But it does have consequences. And how do we think about it? Now, Jesus just presents really two basic principles in this parable. Again, couldn't be simpler. One is the classic Christian notion that money must always be a means and not an end to things. It sounds simple, but it can be really difficult, uh, especially because we can be obsessed with how much money can do for us. Money is not an end in and of itself. The size of your bank account is not an end in and of itself. What you can do with it, that's an end. And when you see things in that context, it forces you to consider what are those ends that I'm spending my money on, and am I spending my money on the right things? Jesus says we should be spending our money on furtherance of the kingdom, bringing about peace and joy to your community, helping those in need, helping your family, being healthy and whole in your personal life. Are you working towards the kingdom with the way that you accumulate your money? It's a question for all of us to consider. The other thing that he brings up, that Jesus brings up, is this notion that you have to remember always that it could change like that. Life is fickle. We don't know what the future holds. And sometimes the future comes in and changes our plans in an instant. My father was only 58 when he had his terminal diagnosis for cancer. 
58 years old. My father is someone who would be the first to admit that he obsessed a lot over making sure he saved up enough for a comfortable retirement. Stressed out about that constantly. Put himself through uh, a living hell certain times that I had to witness, unfortunately. And then, in the cruelest irony, he got this diagnosis. And all of a sudden, all of those things, all that calculus changed. It was funny. My father, before he, uh, before he had his diagnosis of cancer, was saving every little penny. And, and then after he had this diagnosis, he's like, you know what? Maybe I will go, do on that, go on that trip. <laughs> Maybe I will go spend that money. Um, but it took that diagnosis for him to try and consider that and wrestle with that more deeply. There's the famous story of Aristotle and Assis. You know, he's the Greek shipping magnate who was most famous for marrying Jackie Kennedy, um, but someone who, again, was fabulously wealthy. And the story goes that when Aristotle and Assis died, uh, the one question that could be heard buzzing around the funeral constantly is, how much? How much did he leave? How much did he leave? What was the number? And of course, the answer is, he left everything. So the question we all have to consider is, what are we going to leave? How much do we want to leave? And for what ends? After all, that is the meaning and purpose of money. Not itself, but what it can do 